what we're talking about in this series is what could be called pre-evangelism. You know, what is the groundwork that you lay as you're building the, the connection and the relationship before uh, the person converts? So last fall, we kind of hit like four points or four strategies for being in pre-evangelism conversations. So this is just a really, really quick review. So the first one was we want to work on learning the other person's viewpoint. We want to try to build an emotional bridge. We want to engage in generous listening. Some of our goals is that we want to learn their story. So we talked about some questions of, you know, tell me about your journey, either out of Christianity or, or whatever your current situation is. Understand what they currently believe. Ask them questions. These are all things that you can accomplish in questions. Find common ground in shared beliefs and discover the person's barriers or gaps in their thinking. So these are all kind of our strategies of what we can be doing to help foster and grow a relationship with other people. Number two is uh, then shift into offensive tactics, as I call it. We want to begin to ask thought-provoking questions to help the conversation go deeper. Now, the uh, evangelism explosion version of this offensive tactic question is, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I looked it up when EE started. It was 1962. And so I want you to think about how different our culture was in 1962 and that what may have been a good effective question back then to help the conversation go deeper may or may not still work it might in some situations depending on the age of the person and what they're going through but I just thought that was interesting I thought wow that was America was quite a different place in in 1962 here's another one that I I found very effective uh, sometimes is would you consider yourself to be a good person This is, if you're familiar with Ray Comfort's ministry, he does a lot of street evangelism. This is kind of his lead-in question. And then you have a discussion about what does it mean to be good? Are all people good? Have you ever stolen a pencil from the library? This sort of conversation. I like to ask the person, well, what's your, you know, I'm a Christian. What's your understanding of what Christianity is even about? And then we can begin to talk about that. I find that to be a very effective question because I'm inviting them to share a perspective with me. Another good one that I like is, well, would you consider yourself right now far from God or near to God and why? And then we can begin to talk about what that means for them. So those are just some good lead-in questions to shift the conversation. Okay, number three is lead the person into one insight. So we want to bring at least one thing new to their awareness. Um, the question we did last week would fit into this is, you know, I'm open to considering that your worldview is true, but how could I test that? How could I know that your worldview is more true than my worldview? And it's beginning to build a bridge with them to consider what we called last week, the verification test. Okay. So that'd be a way to do that. All right. So in order to do this, I say, You might need to consult some research or talk to some what I call insiders, people who used to hold that point of view and then converted. They can sometimes give us insight. Sometimes this can be accomplished by recommending that you uh, read a book or watch a video and then discuss it together. But if you do this, you have to be willing to have that give and take of participating with them. And this is what I call uh, putting a rock in their shoe. You know, you're just leaving them with one thing to think about, to go away and to think about. And we don't always know what that one thing is sometimes. Sometimes I think I have this brilliant idea and it just doesn't land anywhere. But that's where the Holy Spirit can can take things uh, and it sticks with them. And then they'll come back later and say, you know, I was thinking about that. Finally, is it invite and receive feedback, a great feedback question is what's hard for you about Christians? What's, what's hard for you about Christianity? That's a feedback question. But it's very effective because then you're inviting them to begin to talk to you about their barriers. 
And then you can usually, you've sifted through all the stuff at the front end of their superficial barriers. And then you're too like, this is the real nitty gritty <laughs> emotional barrier. The listening is so valuable. So we're going to look at some examples of that today. When the person left the conversation, did, did you feel and did they feel, did they feel energized? Did they feel hopeful? Did they feel respected? Did they feel heard? And if I'm kind of sensing that they're withdrawing, I'll just ask. I'll, I'll just come out and ask. I'll say, you know, how are you feeling about it at this point? Where are we at? And just invite them to, to talk to me about it because then if they're feeling uncomfortable, I can affirm the, the relationship. I can affirm them. But you have to be brave to invite feedback because that's how we learn. That's how we grow. And it's, it's a way of, Scripture tells us to have humility. Inviting feedback is a very practical way of engaging in the discipline of humility because it's saying, I'm going to hear your point of view I'm going to receive it, and I'm even going to consider it, that it might be true, or there might be some parts of it that are true. And I'm going to even consider the possibility that maybe I need to make an adjustment moving forward. That's humility. So inviting feedback is a very practical way of engaging in the Christian discipline of, of humility. So now we're going to talk today a case study. This one's going to be with an analytical person. Many of us have analytical people in our oikos, people that love to ask questions, and I love them. I welcome them. I want to just run up to them and say, I welcome you. Let's talk about all your questions, okay? Because this is my heart, and this is where I work. So we're going to talk about an analytical person, but it's also a case study in someone who's deconverted away from Christianity. So... This is the case study that we're going to have today. And my lovely assistant is going to play some clips for us. And this is from a documentary called A Purple State of Mind. And it's sort of an obscure documentary that was put together some years ago by uh, the, film, uh, the head of the film department at my alma mater at Biola University. And um, he has an old college friend, and so we're going to meet them. And we're going to see a series of conversations over a series of months with them together talking about their, both of their faith journeys. And then we're going to kind of process it together. Okay. I'm not really sure what it is that you're going for here. I mean, I want to be helpful, right. but I don't really know, you know, the genesis of this thing. What, how did it, you know, what, where did this come from? You know, I had a weird conversation about two years ago. Uh, I met a couple while I was doing a profile for 60 Minutes on the Left Behind books. You know, the Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins books? Oh, yeah. You know, into the world stuff. And they're this huge phenomenon. So I was doing a piece about both the authors and the readers. And um, I auditioned a couple. And at the end of the audition, which is me asking questions basically, the husband turns to me and says, may I ask you a question? I said, sure. And he said, will you be left behind? Ouch. <laughs> So I said, definitely. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm behind. And, uh, but then I thought about that. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, here this question comes at me. And it's a question that a Christian will ask a lot of times, uh, every day, sometimes, some people. And a lot of people get asked that question in America. So why don't I actually try to answer it? Why me? Why now? You're the witness to the moment when I began to lose my faith. I mean, you were, we were roommates that year when everything started to kind of go shaky. And um, there were conversations that we had back then that actually contributed to the decisions I made. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Absolutely. Why? I think there's plenty of uh, evidence, whether that's scientific or um, academic, plenty of evidence that indicates clearly a man named Jesus lived and walked Not the earth. question. In this time, I'm not done. I understand that the person, the historical person of Christ is the 
starting point for this. But that's not really the question. The question is, do you believe that he died, was dead for three days, and then rose from the dead to save humanity, um, basically from itself? And Ab you in the bargain, personally. Absolutely. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Okay. Just like the Apostles' Creed said it, I believe it. I believe it both from a, some evidence, but much more I believe it experientially. And when I got to Davidson College and somebody introduced me to the possibility that Jesus was risen and alive, right. I experienced a personal resurrection. I went from being dead inside right. to feeling somehow uh, newly alive, right. awakened. Right. Uh, my spirit was quickened. And so I've experienced uh, the resurrection personally, and I also believe in the resurrection historically. How that quickening you're talking about, that's a yeah. beautiful word, how? My early days with Jesus were the biggest high I'd ever experienced. Right. And I mean, that's for real. Like I woke up in the morning and I'm just like, I'm alive, it's, it, look at the sky, it's so blue. Look at those plants, they're so green. Right. I love Jesus, he loves me. I mean, I, my whole senses just like started tingling. Coming to Jesus, totally, totally woke up my creative spirit. The other thing that woke up my creative spirit was rooming with you. So that just gives us kind of an introduction to their stories, right? So you have one guy who's grew up in the church and then deconverts. And then you have another guy who has no religious background and he converts and they're roommates in college, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, whatever it is. So what do we learn? What kind of example I have there is for this first clip is they're kind of trying to catch up with each other. They're trying to figure out where are we at now. They're sort of doing step number one of what we shared earlier. They're figuring out where they are in their journey. They're learning each other's story, what they currently believe, and that sort of thing. And so I just want you to get a mental picture of what, what that looks like, okay? All right, uh, we're gonna look at the second clip, and now we're gonna look at them kind of trying to find some common ground with, with one another. I think that what I believe about the whole thing is that I don't know it. For me, I can't get past the wall of experience. And I don't mean in the sense that I can't get past it in some negative way. It's that I think that I'm one of those people who feels that he belongs here. This you get earth. me? This earth. As opposed to that this other world. Don't, it doesn't interest me. And I think when I was Guess a what? Christian. So do I. Well, you know what? I'm sure that's true. I'm a this world Christian. I can see that. And I think that's one of those things. I think one of the things that maybe the key to the chemistry was, we were both really in this life. My experience of Jesus um, happened in the context of somebody who was already sort of very straight-laced. I kind of went to Sunday school. I, I didn't even listen to rock and roll until I was 16. And you know what my first album was that opened my eyes? Was Queen's News of the World, which isn't even rock and roll. It's pathetic. But I thought that was, oh, what is this? We will rock you? That's, I don't know. And that was, that, that was given to me in homeroom by somebody who was throwing it away. And I thought the album cover was cool. So with, I, the robot, I, the with the robot, with the robot, with the goofy oh. robot. I just thought that Tragic. that is what is calling to me. And the second out my head, Fog Hat Live. So I didn't start out in an exalted place at all. I had no taste. I had bad clothes. I barely had a sense of humor. When I was a kid, I had five heroes: John Wayne, Jesus Christ, J.R.R. Tolkien, T.E. Lawrence, and Bruce Springsteen. That's when I was like 17 or 18 years old. Right? So I started to fall away sophomore year, right? I remember hearing Bruce Springsteen's album, Nebraska. In oh, fact, I, I think we skipped school. Yeah. We drove into Charlotte. We found the that first little... record store we could find yeah. and bought Nebraska. Brought it back to our room, like turned off all the lights and listened to this spooky, spooky album. It was religion. And when the album finished, um, we were like quiet. It was like a holy moment. Let's not disturb it. It's so holy. And then, of course, for the next hour, we pontificated about... <laughs> this holy moment. Right, but that album to me, you know what it suggested to me in a way that I couldn't have articulated then, is that 
you're blinding yourself. This whole mm. religiosity, this whole thing that you got into when you were 16 years old, and not just then. You've so, got to realize, so wait, wait, wait. So blindness for you became seeing for me. Yeah, I think so. I think so because I see here's the difference. For you, I think that Christ was in great part a liberation Absolutely. from where you came from. Yes. For me, it was slavery to where I came from. So their common ground was they both kind of liked rock and roll. They both, they talk in another part of the film. I can't remember if that's still in there or not, but they talked about their love of movies. And that's what they mean by this world. They were very this world oriented. And they shared that fun of, of those things. But isn't it interesting how as one is in the process of deconverting, uh, begins to see these, these certain limitations and ways of seeing things as slavery, whereas the, the new Christian sees Jesus as absolute freedom and love and hope and all of these things. And so it's the same paradigm, but for one, as they're deconverting, it becomes more of a slavery paradigm. And this is what I've been trying to talk to you guys about the last couple of weeks is beliefs are funny things. They, they, they're different for different people. And so you have to work to understand how does this person experience this particular issue. All right, clip three. Let's do clip three. So what we're looking for here is uh, building an emotional bridge, which is part of number one, generous listening, and then discovering uh, hindrances to the gospel. Okay. Oh, stop it for a second. This and this one now, it's a separate conversation. Several months have gone by and they went back to their college dorm room and they knocked on the door to some random student living there now and said, can we look in your dorm room? We used to live here. And so that's what you're looking at here was their little dorm room that, that they shared. I think we had every intention of rooming together as seniors. Right. And something happened that junior year. Yeah. I don't know what. I was getting postcards. Pretty hard to explain major paradigm shifts on a postcard. But it'd be references that would say things like, you know, I don't know, uh, Sweet D, it just can't be the way it was. Sweet D, I've, se I'm, I've seen a little too much. Sweet D, I'm kind of tired. I don't know. You, you either saw something, heard something. You know what happened something? to me? Yeah. Here's what happened to me. I think that I came from a small world. I was raised in a sheltered, secluded little community in which there was football, Jesus, and money. But I was hungry for something larger and wider and bigger, okay? I mean, I was. I was starved for it. So I went to Germany. All of a sudden, I got to Europe, and I felt, first of all, the richness of time. The experience of time blew my mind. To see a church, a nothing church, not a masterpiece, nothing, but a church in a small German village that was 700 years old, that blew my mind. It's like, whoa. Just, just stop a second. And the other thing is I discovered is there were the amazing, these amazing people out here. I discovered writers who either created entire worldviews that were just indifferent to faith or, or built out of faith but went in another direction or actually took it on and said, you want a piece of me? Come on. And that was what Nietzsche did for me. There's this postcard that I wrote you when I was in Germany discovering Nietzsche. Dear Craig, I wanted to accompany my dreary letter with this more uplifting postcard. Your letter received an hour ago has put me deep in thought. As for my faith, I cannot be less vague than only to say it is in no way dead. I'm not lost, but I'm not found. I can't say I'll ever use the word saved again. Love, John. So in that clip, he's kind of relaying some more steps that went into his deconversion. He goes to Europe and he kind of sees a bigger picture of the world. And he's thinking, you know, how does my faith from small town America, can it accommodate this bigger world? And uh, he starts reading Nietzsche. Who knows what worldview Nietzsche reflects? Nietzsche was a German philosopher at the turn of the 20th century. And he promoted a worldview called nihilism where there was no ultimate meaning or purpose or in life. There was nothing transcendent about life. He's the author of the famous uh, phrase, God is dead. And they have a, 
little discussion about that that I'm not going to play, but is another part of the film of what Nietzsche meant by that and analyzing that. What's interesting to me is how analytical these two guys are, right? They're really discussing philosophy and religion. And, and I think it's a misnomer in our culture that artists are not deep people. Artists tend to be some of the deepest people and very analytical, even though they're also very creative because they are thinking about what they want their art to reflect. And uh, the fact that he starts getting into Nietzsche, I think, is very interesting as to where his journey ultimately takes him. Okay, so the next clip is going to be a little bit of a feedback uh, clip where we're going to see some, some feedback. Okay. So after we graduate, you head off for Japan. What did you set out to do? I was on a mission. I was a missionary. I went there to tell people about Jesus. I went, to, I went to Japan to tell the Japanese people that Jesus loves them. And did you believe that? I still believe that. And I still believe that the Japanese people um, are pretty sad and pretty hurting or drifting. I looked at their Buddhism. I looked at their Shintoism. And it didn't really make much difference in their lives. They kind of just put it on and took it off for various holidays. So, in a sense, I was offering them a real, vital alternative, a costly alternative, particularly in Japan. Not to put too fine a point on this, but um, where do you get off? <laughs> you were 22 years old. You didn't know Jack. Like, you're talking about an entire nation of people. I don't understand why you would do it. I, because... I honestly believe that uh, in the way that Jesus revolutionized my life in all kinds of positive ways, yeah. that he could potentially revolutionize anybody's life, any, any race, creed, color, nation, any place on this earth. How deep was your insight? How far did you see? Well, you know, I mean, I, it was just based on the, in a sense, the people that I was talking to. Your language skills. Uh, they want to, well, the, the joy of going to Japan is they all want to speak English. Right. So I didn't learn any Japanese. They just wanted to practice their English with me. Can I just suggest, I mean, I'm not talking about how you were then. I right. mean, I would, sh I shudder to think about my days about the world at 22. Right. And, you know, I mean, but, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. but so, but it seems to me that if you didn't speak the language mm -hmm. and you didn't know the culture in any deep way, you knew what you believed. Yeah, absolutely. You knew what you believed. Yes. And you knew what you thought an empty life was. Yes. And you thought that based upon what you knew about those things, these people, an entire nation, was living an empty life. I didn't know. I went to see. You went to see. I went to see. But you felt after looking that this is what the case was, that it was, there was a, a vacuum. There was a, there was a darkness hovering over the nation, despite their success. And there was no darkness hovering over your nation. Oh, the, be <laughs> the beauty of going to Japan is that I suddenly start reading newspapers about the news in America that are written from an international perspective. Right. And I go, well, wait a minute, what are we doing? How can we say we know what the Japanese uh, should be doing? Right. How can we decide you know, what uh, world trade should look like? Right. I saw American imperialism. I was an American imperialist. I went to Japan on a mission <clears throat> for them. And what happened was that God essentially completely rearranged my own thinking and broke me down and showed me all of my blind spots, all of my arrogance, um, all of my assumptions. Why do you give God credit for that? Why the hell <laughs> do you give God credit for that? Be you know why? Because every day of my life, I'd start the day saying, all right, God, what do we have for today? What are you going to show me? And I calibrated my life, inviting the Spirit to lead me. So isn't it interesting? They both go overseas, but have two very different, see it from two very different points of view. For one of them, it begins to break down his faith. For the other, it grows his faith. And he, it causes him to think more deeply about the differences between being an American and being a Christian. It's, it's fascinating to me how similar the experiences are, but what's the difference? There's just their own web of beliefs and how they decide to interact with that. And, and this is what I mean. Beliefs are curious things. 
in how we, how we arrive at different places in our lives. So for one, his, his worldview seemed, of Christianity seemed small when he got overseas. The other, it expanded. I just find that fascinating. And also, the, did you notice the feedback? He's like, well, where do you get off doing this? But he doesn't react to that. He just, you don't see anything different about his posture. Just stays in it, keeps answering his questions. Okay, next is another conversation. Um, now I want you to notice here where they start to go deeper. They start to do what we talked about in step two of taking the conversa- conversation deeper. They begin to explore areas of disagreement. And um, also a little bit more feedback and more about barriers. Okay. We've actually been, I think, surprised at how much common ground we found. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm starting to wonder what are our common differences. You know, for example, I don't quite understand um, sort of the foundations of maybe your love for humanity or your concern for the world. I mean, what's that based on? It seems kind of... Well, why do you assume I have some love for humanity? I don't know. I think that already is kind of uh, maybe a false assumption. (laughs) Here's what I think is the difference between you and me, if I may. Uh Here's Uh my imitation of you. (laughs) This is the big difference. I don't have this walking around in front of my eyes. You're saying I'm, I'm... Blocking the world out through the with the I, Bible. I'm saying, let me look. Just look at what I'm holding up. Have you yeah. seen this book? You know about this? The Bible. Yeah, you know about. I've this. heard about it. You have. Yeah, it's a bestseller. Right? This is not. Uh, so this, what you would admit is, it is not a pair of binoculars. It's not even a telescope. It's not a pair of bifocals. Right. It doesn't seem to have a. Uh, Hi, I a love s- you. <laughs> I love humanity. I'm Craig. You're saying I'm. You're saying that I'm full of it. I'm not trying to say that you're blind or mm-hmm. stupid. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying at is that you, the, the, the thing that separates us most deep, deeply is this book. As far as I can tell, I could be wrong, this book for you is everything. So you, are you saying it's a filter through which I Craig, see the world? Craig, answering my question. No, no, no. no. I want to know. I want to no, know no, what no, you're no. saying. No, no, no. Okay, pause it for a second, Emily. Now, do you see how Craig keeps trying to narrow in like, okay, what's the problem? He's being very, very kind but persistent to try to understand the real nature of, of what this guy's trying to give him some feedback, but he wants to make sure he's understanding the feedback. So he keeps trying to ask questions. So are you saying that I'm this? Are you saying that I'm this? He's not trying to immediately jump into a defense of himself. He's trying to invite the guy into more conversation to understand what the real barrier is. How does he see me? What does he see as being the problem? Craig, I think, is doing a good job of staying calm and continuing to ask clarifying questions. This is a very, very important skill to, to do. Don't assume you know what the other person is saying and, and just start answering that. Repeat it back to them, but in a form of a question, and you can really begin to zero in on that. Okay, go ahead. No, no. You do <laughs> this all the time. Saying. You're a master yeah. evader, and I'm sick <laughs> of it. What you're talking about. <laughs> Craig, no, I'll tell you what, but everybody who knows you knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> You love to answer a question with a question, and when I try to pin you down, you immediately try to act like, oh, I'm on your side after all. Every time I open my mouth to challenge you at all, you're like, oh, buddy, I think just like you do. Well, I'm here to tell you, you don't. It's more feedback. You and I do not share this. Fair enough. Now, so, can we just get some things established? Yeah. I once asked you, are you an evangelical? And you said, if you say so. Then I asked you if you were a Christian, and you said, if you say so. (laughs) So what are you? (laughs) I mean, there's a level, I think, of dishonesty about what you're doing. Because you're always, you're slippery. You're slippery it's as hell. more feedback. So what is it? Are you a Christian? I am a follower of Jesus. No. I am a follower of Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? I am, I am desperately trying to figure out what that means. I am trying to separate Jesus from what people have done in his name. You and try to not tar him with that brush. I'm Paul starts it. <clears throat> That's scripture. The people who wrote the four books, the four central books, wrote about how the Jews murdered Jesus. No, 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 no. It has, it, it has been read that way. That's not, what they, that's not what they did. You can make that book say whatever you want. You can make well, that justify. Well, then what good it's, is it? It's just, I'm not saying, you can justify slavery with it, and we have. 
You can justify oppression of homosexuals in it, and we have. You can justify war, killing, all manner of things with then it, why do and you we bother, have. Craig? Why do you because bother? Because the reality of Jesus revealed in there is not a dead issue. That is a living issue. This book, I call it the what? Word of God. It is, it, is, it is active, but I don't think it's finished. God is still active. How does that work? I don't even know what you're talking about. This is a book. <laughs> Touch it. Are you afraid to touch it? You, I ahead. love it. It's, it's uh, yeah, got you. Wait a minute. It's radioactive. Wait, it's, got, can, it's got your name on it. It does. So what does that mean? I wrote it. <laughs> okay. The point is, this book is about God's relationship to humanity. It starts with in the entire creation, God's relationship to the world, God's relationship to the universe. It becomes very specific about a specific type of people. That plan goes okay, it needs some corrections along the way, it needs some prophets to sort of say, you know, I gave you the law, I thought that'd be enough, seems like you haven't quite got it right, let me correct it, let me call you back. That doesn't work, now we got plan three. Maybe it's the original plan, maybe it's the best plan. Let my son incarnate it for you. Let my Jesus show you, let, let me just make it plain for you. I'm not about the power moves. I'm not about oppression. I'm not about violence. Let me show you how not about violence I am. I'm gonna lay down and let you kill me real good. But that, look, that, He Craig, inverts no. all religious history. Yeah, yeah, all no. religious history, he is all a, religions. He's a violent God who murdered his own son to make a point. And besides, remember, this is the God who murdered countless people in the earlier incarnation. So, I mean, what am I to make of this? And this, also, the prophetic book that closes the whole thing promises a mass murder of the kind that Charles Manson could only dream of. So what are you trying to rescue here? I mean, why is it? I don't get it. Craig, you know, honestly... Hold on, I gotta, I gotta respond to that. Okay. I gotta respond to that. I don't know if Jesus wanted to found a religion. I know he clearly called us to love instead of hate, to embrace rather than reject. And <clears throat> I think he also called us to do that in community with each other. So wherever I see that happening, wherever I see people in the name of Jesus extending love, extending grace, extending hope, extending forgiveness, I know God is there. So, so I can, I can personally say that I'm following Jesus. I'm going to try to do it along with Jesus' followers. If Jesus came back today, we all know he'd be killed immediately by the most sincere religious people. That's the way it works. Whoever holds the power would want to kill this dude. Right, because he would come and basically say no. That's it. No. That's it. You, you express grave doubts, which makes it very hard for me to position myself as the non-believer <laughs> and you as the believer. That's why I say you're like Jello. I wasn't trying to be an asshole. Mm -hmm. Here's my point. As long as you walk around like this, saying that you are seeing the things around you and the people around you and the suffering around you, you will not see any of it until you do this. At that moment, you will see. Now we're kind of getting closer to what his real issues are. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what, he's angry at God. What about, what does he see Christianity as being about? A God who's angry too. God who kills people and killed Jesus to make a point. And he's accusing Craig, the Christian. He says, your problem is, I think right at the end there, and that's why the clip was so long, is he came back to the Bible scenario. And he, what he's really telling Craig is, you can't see the suffering that other people are experiencing because you're, blocking your vision with this Bible. 
And I think in that we start getting hints at what his real issues are. But do you notice how this takes time and a lot of love to stay in the conversation? And maybe you don't even like Craig's answers. Maybe you would have answered differently. And that's okay. But in that moment, maybe that was the answer that the Lord was leading him into. Maybe he was struggling. Um, But he's also thinking, how do I... Remember, our goal is, my goal is I want to stay in relationship enough with this person that I get an invitation to another conversation. If he comes out and he just starts correcting him, maybe the Holy Spirit is, was directing him, I don't know, in that moment to focus more on the love of God. I probably would have answered those questions a little differently, but I can't say for sure because I don't know what the Holy Spirit was telling him in that moment that maybe that's what that guy needed. Um, or maybe he was just feeling on the spot and he was making something up in that moment and the camera captured it. But I think in that conversation, we start to drill a little deeper as to what the real issues are. And that's really going to come out in the next um, couple clips here. Okay, let's just hurry it along. And what, What's in your hand? You're saying you've got no bias? You're oh. saying you've got no filter? No, I do have a bias, and I do have a filter. There's no doubt that I do have you're a bias. You're saying you're looking at the world in a pure way, and mine is tainted? No, 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 I'd never say it's pure. I would never say it's pure, because I don't believe yeah, in Yeah, but purity. now we're just down to your, your version versus my version. I, I don't think so, because what I think is... Yours is standing on nothing. You're, you're a straw man. You can change yours based on the weather. No, that's not true. That's of not course true. it is. It's not true at all, Craig. What's your core? You don't have a core. What's your core? The, the position that you okay, Christians... Okay, stop for a second. I would handle that so differently. I would have been, because I think that Craig, he's frustrated. He's letting his frustration get to him. So now he's going on the offense, but he's doing it in a very accusatory way. The trick is staying calm enough in your position, because that, that's our, our default is to start defending ourselves. And I think Craig figures it out after a minute or two here, and he starts realizing, and he kind of makes a shift. But I wouldn't recommend that, but I think it's still valuable to see that because that's normal. That's human nature, is to try to defend ourselves. And that's what we're trying to build an awareness of so that we don't fall into that. Okay, go ahead. Put us non-believers in, is to say, oh, well, if you don't believe in us, if you don't believe in the Jewish God, if you don't believe in the God of Islam, all of which provide absolute roadmaps, mm. then you must just believe in this world where, you know, nothing really has any foundation. It's all about the synapses in your brain and the chemicals and it's just your body. And, and hey, that's all it's about. Well, that's actually false. That's a, that's a perjury. That's a sort of knowing lie. Okay, but, I think, but and, you're just doing a pastiche job. So what's wrong with pastiche? What's well, your pastiche. That's true, but I'm not preaching it, Craig. You have okay, this, but you're, but you, you have this impulse but, 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 to no, spread see, your version of reality bra- to everyone else. How brave is it to say, um, "I'll uh, I'll be my own god. I'll decide. I'll be the center of my own universe." Who says That's that doing brave. that makes you your own god? Doesn't make you your own. You, god. You're the center of your own universe, aren't you? No, that doesn't mean just because I don't take these written texts as my. Who's the center of your world? You know the truth about the center of my world, what it actually is? If I'm talking about the sustaining of my life and the life of my child and of my wife and everything I love, it's the earth. One big difference between you and me is that you look to the sky for your answers and I look to the earth. I am a creature of the earth. I came from this earth. My life will stop when life on this earth stops. So where is the center of my existence? In a way, it is me, but I'm smart enough to know that it cannot only be me. Okay, it has to be the things that sustain and allow my life to happen. So I should worship the earth. Anybody, any prophet that comes along and says, you people are wrong to worship the so earth and earthly things is, is crazy. You once apologized to me for driving me out of the kingdom by something you said. Yeah. That implies to me that you think because you drove me out of the kingdom that I am going to hell. I'm lost. Do you believe that? <laughs> I think the bigger question is, do you believe that? Uh, there you go again. You're I'm answering just, a question, I'm but the question is, this is what you. you do. You're a master of evasion. Nail it down. Do you believe that? And then I'll answer your question. I believe that if you've decided to make yourself the center of the universe... Ah, look, hold stop on. putting words in my mouth. No, no. If, if, if you have is said that, what you that believe the universe I'm doing? ends with you... 
But I didn't say that. If you believe if that the, believe that in the this, world, I believe that the universe only ends in me. No, it, I, if you say that that. Um, I don't believe in your God. That is what I am okay, saying. Okay, fair enough. But you know what? If you don't even believe in an afterlife, then why do you care? Do you believe in an afterlife? I don't know if there's an afterlife. Okay, it so what, really do you care, what do you care whether I think you're going to hell or not? Because I take it quite personally. Why should you? If you think you're not, if there isn't any afterlife? Because, frankly, if you're telling me that because I don't believe what you believe, I'm lost or damned, what you're saying to me is, you're an asshole. You know, you don't want to answer this question because you know how it makes you sound. You never want to be caught dead saying that. Because you know how that sounds, and you know it's tied to the 2,000-year history of persecution of Jews and others. You know that that question of what happens to those who don't believe is a, is a damned hard question for you, and to answer it puts you in company that you don't want to be in. But I want you to answer the question. I think every person is given a choice. <laughs> oh, my God. Every person is given a choice, and so that's why all my questions to you are, what have you chosen? I can't, t I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know what will be in your heart. Uh, I don't even, I don't, I don't know that everybody doesn't get a second chance. I don't know that everybody doesn't get a, a seventh chance, a 70 times seven chances. Why? But you will have a moment, I have no idea how long it lasts probably, where you will stand before your maker and give an account. We all will. That's a rough moment. You ever been in that situation with an unbeliever? And they think that they want to know, like, they want to have you pin it down for them. Or, Am I going to hell? That's a, that's a rough question. And I think Craig was, was struggling there of, you know, you got to remember, this isn't like some scripted thing. And I think that, that you know, Craig's taken some criticism about some of his, his answers. But if you were in that moment and the cameras were rolling, you know, that's, that's a difficult question, especially when it's somebody you've been in relationship with in for a few decades and that you want to stay in relationship with. Okay, let's keep going because the best is yet to come. I can tell you that for many years, even after college and after those letters and after you and I knew each other, I continued to believe in God. But... I also know the exact moment when it became impossible for me for one more day to believe in God. And I think if I tell you this story, you will understand that it comes at the end of a long period in which sure. I tried to continue to believe sure. that there was this reality sure. that connected me to the heart of things, as opposed to a Jesus that increasingly stood between me and the heart of things in this life. So I'm a reporter in the Balkans. I'm a pretty green reporter. I'm within a year of my first job for a national magazine, US News and World Report, and I've been sent to Serbia to take the place of a veteran reporter who's been there for a month and is getting tired and needs to go home. So there's this little enclave of Muslims in that place surrounded by Christian Montenegrins. Those people are driven out of their village, their houses are burned, they're driven across the border into Serbia where they are left there and surrounded by people who won't let them leave. They are all old people. This old man tells me he watched his house burn down, he watched his village destroyed, he has nothing left in the world, but he has one hope. His one ray of hope is this. His sons, six months before his village was burned down, were taken off a bus and taken away to a prison camp in northern Bosnia. They were taken away, but he knows they're alive, and when it's possible, he and his aged wife will go and meet their sons and they will leave and everything will be all right because the family will be reunited. And the interpreter leans over to me and whispers in my ear, I happen to know this man's sons are dead. <clears throat> and the perversity of that moment killed for all time my capacity to believe in God. <clears throat> I had been there for 10 minutes and I knew that this man's one hope in the world was gone. <clears throat> and I couldn't tell him and I knew that at the end of the day I was going to leave and go back to my safe house and my family 
I had a passport that still functioned, and he had nothing, and some complete stranger knew that everything he had left was extinguished. Now, it wasn't that the people who did this to him were nominal Christians. I never believed in their Christianity anyway. But it was that that could even happen. If you could ever tell me that in this life there is a God that presides over some meaning there, I would have to say, I don't give a crap because if that God exists, I am in permanent contention with him. Here's the final thing. I have been born into the most privileged existence that may have ever existed on this planet. I have was raised in a house where my standard of living was incredibly high and it was middle class. I have my health. I have a passport which once upon a time got me anywhere in the world. I live in the most powerful, well-protected state on earth. And on top of it all, I'm going to grant myself salvation in the afterlife. I'm just, that's the cherry on top. How, what, what nerve? I've got everything else. So then I'm going to sort of say, okay, and buddy, guess what? Sorry about that poor bastard who's a Muslim and by definition can never get in the kingdom on top of everything else. So he's lost his children, he's lost his village, he's lost everything, and he's also damned, and I'm gonna be saved? So you see, for me, it's over. And I can't accept the riddle of Christ and the riddle of God as acceptable as a riddle. Okay. So we finally arrived, right? We, we finally arrived at the real issue. So we started off with his question in the very first clip was, well, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? It's a doctrinal question. It's a very kind of general question. But as I've said all along, for every question, there's a reason behind the question. And that's what you're trying to get to. And it took several conversations, several months, to get to that moment where he finally knew what that deconversion moment was. But imagine the trust that he would have to maintain with his friend in order for his friend to trust him with that very difficult confession of here's, here's where it is. And um, I wish, you know, that I, I think that what that clip does so powerfully is there's really no answer for that. There's nothing that Craig can say to, to counteract that. You could come up with something, but really what that guy's explaining is, this are my feelings about the situation. And I, I'm not sure that there's anyone other than the Holy Spirit that could speak into that to give that guy a different point of view. So we get to the end, they walk away and here's the very interesting ending of all of these conversations. I'm going away while you were left for me. Well, I'm gone. You have to see this. Yeah? You guys have got a camera? Yeah. I've, I have a camera. Well, I'm, out, I'm totally out of film, and I've been wanting to take a picture of this so badly, but we have this amazing flower that only blooms, like... Once, once a year? Wow. Once for a few hours in the summer night, and that's it. You're Can kidding. we come down and take a look at it? Oh, yeah, you have to. It smells incredible. What? What is it? It's the night blooming cirrus. Night blooming cirrus. Name for? The star in the sky, the cirrus star. Take it, be very really delicate, but it has the most amazing perfume. Oh, it's amazing. Wow. In, in the afternoon, it shows a tiny little bit of its petals, and then as soon as the sun goes down, it starts to open, but very quickly. And One and night only. One night only, and just for a few hours, because it's going to start closing soon. By midnight, it'll be closed. It'll be over. Once a year, one right. night. That's it. And we're here tonight. Mm -hmm. You got it. In this moment, this is this is magic. This is miraculous. John, are you feeling you it? Are you feeling it? That after all the arguments you have made to me, none of which are acceptable or convincing in the least, that flower right there is the closest thing to an argument that there is for your view of the world. 
right there. So after all that, randomly walking by some flower, and this guy finds this more compelling than all of these conversations. And this is what I've been saying, is that some people believe some things for non-rational reasons. You know, what is it about a flower blooming one night a year that this guy finds more interesting? Uh, who knows? Who knows? But it's fascinating to me that for him, as we talked about a few weeks ago, arguments can be very person relative, can't they? I wouldn't find that compelling in the least. But for him, that was an, uh, a transcendent moment. So anyways, I hope that you have found this little jaunt through the purple state of mind helpful to just uh, lay a, uh, a real life scenario of dealing with an analytical person. And I think I've said this before, but when you're dealing with people that are more analytical, it's going to take time. This is not probably going to be a one-time type of conversation because they're going to it takes you a while to drill down to what the real issues are. My boss, who's a scientist, says on average, he's found that in evangelism with scientists, it takes seven years of conversations to stay engaged with them. And so you want to keep winning those conversations, winning a new conversation, and not necessarily winning arguments. And... Um, on average, if you're, if you're dealing with someone who's analytical, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take more time. What I wanted you to see in this is the importance of the relationship. You cannot underestimate how the relationship is playing out underneath all of Craig's answers. He's wanting to stay in relationship, not burn the relationship for the sake of having the most accurate, precise, best answers. And so I think that the reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to play all those clips is so you can see that the relationship is important. And that's not to say we don't ever want to speak truth into someone's life. Craig still took a lot of risks in that. But he's trying to figure out in his head, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, how can I say this so that this person will keep talking to me? Because my hope is that we keep talking and that eventually they'll have a different point of view. So I'll give you some homework. Um, if you want more help with dealing with analytical people, I have a short little talk I did um, with some tips on how to do that. That's in the one clip. And then a short article about arguments and how not to engage in arguments with analytical people. So there's that. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the people in our lives that don't know you because yet, because they are an opportunity to help us grow. And they're an opportunity for us to partner with you in what you are already doing in their lives uh, to bring them to faith. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to um, choose faith over fear. And that we would be empowered and really know who we are as ministers of the gospel. That we are ambassadors of reconciliation for your kingdom. For the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.